0: This is broadcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but please enjoy this encore presentation of the broadcast that was originally recorded on March 31st, 2022. We'll be back soon. This performative outrage is not in earnest. This is a political hit, part of liberals' years long quest to delegitimize the court.
1: But Mitch McConnell, it's your job to delegitimize the court, and
2: you're great at it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. Oh, no, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my
1: chair. And I'm wondering how i get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast. as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from the world-famous bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another edition of the Bradcast. I uh, frankly, just don't know how we're going to come up with enough to talk about with our friend Mark Joseph Stern.
0: Gosh, is there anything going on with the Supreme Court these days?
1: I, uh, that's, uh, of course, Slate's legal and Supreme Court and elections and LGBTQ dq's reporter mark joseph stern it's been uh, you know it's been a very slow uh period for <laughs> issues regarding the supreme court and and so forth but uh in any event just in case we can come up with something the great mark joseph stern uh, one of our always favorite guests and a fan favorite too by the way if my email is any indication uh he will be joining us momentarily Lots to talk about today. Anyway, longtime listener Ron R. out here in Southern California writes in to me via Bradcast at Bradblog.com today to say, just made a call to my local Rite Aid re-getting my second covid booster and i owe that to your timely on-air reminder good thank you he says and regards to ms doyan
0: ah hello i guess good that's job, you ron.
1: there you go <laughs> um well yes good job ron uh he of course is speaking about our coverage earlier in the week that the fda has now approved a second moderna or pfizer covid booster shot for all folks who are 50 years of age or older um For anyone who has received their last shot, whether it was Moderna, Pfizer, or even Johnson & Johnson more than four months ago, Uh, also those 12 years of age and older who are severely immunocompromised are also cleared to get another shot during what appears to be a lull in cases here in the U.S., even as we continue to watch for another possible surge with the Omicron BA2 variant, which is more transmissible than the original Omicron variant and is already the dominant strain here in the U.S., even as it has been uh, rising sharply in several other countries. That said, there are now just under 1,000 Americans still dying each and every day mm-hmm. from COVID. So, yeah, now it's a great time to get boosted if it's been more than four month, months months uh, since your last shot. And since it's uh, clear Whenever we open our phone lines, that some broadcast listeners are still wildly misinformed by other sources, naturally. And since you probably won't hear a lot of this on Wingnut News outlets today or even on Joe Rogan's show.
0: (laughs) Definitely not on Joe Rogan's show.
1: If you're still foolish enough to follow his disinformation on a critical public health issue, there is this just breaking within the past hour from The New York Times that I feel I will do a public service by highlighting here at the top of today's show before we get to Mark. The anti-parasitic drug ivermectin which has surged in popularity as an alternative treatment for COVID-19, despite a lack of strong research to back it up, showed no sign of alleviating the disease according to the results of a large clinical trial published on Wednesday. Ivermectin, of course, being uh, uh, snidely referred to by some as uh, horse deworming medicine, in this case, the double-blind study, which compared more than 1,300 people infected with the coronavirus in Brazil who received either ivermectin or a placebo, effectively ruled out the drug as a treatment for COVID, according to the study's authors. Dr. David Bulware, an infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota today, says, quote, There's really no sign of any benefit. To ivermectin. The researchers shared a summary of these results in August during an online presentation hosted by the National Institutes of Health, but the full data set had not been published until now, until uh, the New England Journal of Medicine did so on Wednesday. Dr. Boulware said, now that people can dive into the details and the data, hopefully that will steer the majority of doctors away from ivermectin toward other therapies. You know, other therapies that actually have evidence that they work. For decades, ivermectin has been widely used to treat parasitic infections. Early in the pandemic, when researchers were trying, to, trying out thousands of old drugs against COVID-19, laboratory experiments on cells suggested that ivermectin might block the coronavirus. So those weren't tests on, you know, people, human beings. They were just on uh, actual coronavirus cells in the laboratory. At the time, skeptics of those studies pointed out that the experiments worked thanks to high concentrations of the drug, concentrations far beyond safe levels for human beings. Nevertheless, some doctors began prescribing ivermectin for COVID-19, despite a warning from the FDA that it was not approved for such use.
0: And some doctor groups, who shall remain nameless, made a lot of money off of promoting ivermectin because they got a slice of the revenue from doing so.
1: Why keep them nameless? Okay. uh,
0: America's frontline doctors.
1: Frontline fake doctors. Yeah. Anyway, around the world, researchers had carried out small clinical trials to see if the drug treated the, the disease in December of 2020, Dr. Andrew Hill, a virologist at the University of Liverpool in England, reviewed the results of 23 such trials and concluded at the time that ivermectin appeared to significantly lower the risk of death from COVID-19. That, of course, is what many of the ivermectin supporters have long been hanging their hats on. If larger trials confirm those findings, Dr. Hill said in a presentation at the time, quote, This really is going to be a transformative treatment. Ivermectin's popularity then continued to climb in the pandemic's second year as the podcaster Joe Rogan promoted it repeatedly on his shows despite the lack of robust studies to support its effectiveness. But that apparently didn't matter. In a single week in August uh, last year, U.S. insurance companies spent $2.4 million dollars Paying for ivermectin uh, treatments prescribed by doctors who appear to have bought into all of this. But not long after Dr. Hill published his original review last summer, reports surfaced that many of those studies that he looked at in his analysis were actually flawed in an in at least one case it appeared to be a completely fraudulent study. Dr. Hill then retracted his original study of these various studies, which undoubtedly at the time did not make as much news as his original report did. And then he started a new one, which he then published in January of this year. On the second review, Dr. Hill and his colleagues focused on the studies that were least likely to be biased from the ones he had looked at previously. And in that stricter survey, guess what? Ivermectin's benefit vanished, which is why real studies are so necessary. Real peer reviewed studies uh, and why the new results from Brazil are now so important, even to Dr. Hill, by the way. Until today, even the best studies on ivermectin and COVID were very small ones. They had a few hundred volunteers at most. Small studies can be vulnerable to flukes, statistical flukes that suggest positive effects where none actually exist. But larger studies on ivermectin were underway at the time. Those promised to be more rigorous. And one of them was Brazil, where researchers set up a clinical trial known as TOGETHER. Uh, Back in June of 2020 to test covid patients with a whole number of of widely used drugs, including ivermectin. The treatments were double blinded, meaning that neither the patients nor the medical staff actually knew whether the patients had received a covid treatment or a placebo pill in the study. Then published on Wednesday, the Together team reported on its ivermectin data between March and August of twenty twenty one. And the researchers provided, uh, provided the drug to 679 patients over the course of three days. That's a big study. And the results were clear. Taking ivermectin did not reduce a patient's risk of ending up in the hospital. But you know what it does? Getting a vaccine shot. Yeah. And you can get those for free right now. The uh, Brazilian researchers zeroed in on different groups of volunteers to to see if they experienced benefits that others didn't. For example, it could be possible that ivermectin only worked if it was taken very early in the infection. But volunteers who took ivermectin in the first three days after a positive coronavirus test turned out to have worse outcomes than those that were in the placebo group. Ivermectin not only did not help, it appears to have hurt. Hmm. A placebo was more effective. Dr. Hill, whose original analysis of uh, several flawed studies uh, helped kick off the ivermectin craze, he was impressed with the Brazilian results, noting, quote, they have run a high-quality placebo-controlled trial. Dr. Hill has now run his analysis of ivermectin studies once again. This time, he included the new data from the TOGETHER trial from Brazil. All told, his analysis included more than 5,000 people, and once more, he saw no benefit from ivermectin. Now, that said, the Times notes that there are still several ongoing randomized trials of ivermectin with thousands of volunteers that have yet to share their results. So maybe things could change. But Dr. Bullware from Minnesota doubted that. He didn't think additional trials would come to different conclusions since the Together trial was such a large one and so carefully designed. He said, quote, rarely would you expect to find something different. But we will see.
0: Yeah, and it might be required for some of these people who are still clinging to the concept that, oh, it's big science and they're lying to us about ivermectin. So however many it takes... I think is a good idea.
1: I guess so, but Dr. Paul Sachs, who's an uh, infectious disease expert at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, he was not involved in the TOGETHER trial, but he shares Dr. Bulware's view. He says he welcomes the result of the other clinical trials and will view them with an open mind, but at some point he notes it will become a waste of resources Mm. to continue studying an unpromising approach. So, again tons of evidence that the existing COVID vaccines, especially those from Moderna and Pfizer, work really, really well at preventing hospitalization and the most severe uh, cases of the disease. Zero evidence that ivermectin does so. Why someone would prefer a different pharmaceutical also made by the same types of big pharma outlets as the pharmaceuticals That have actual evidence to support their effectiveness. Well, that is beyond me. But, you know, I don't. What do I know? I'm not a big fan of the uh, information from, you know, right wing fake news outlets or from Joe Rogan, since there actually are tons of actually peer-reviewed studies out there to help us understand what works and what does not work to help keep you and your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and people who shop or work in the same grocery store as you safe from becoming severely ill so that we can finally, maybe, soon, someday put this pandemic behind us once and for all, which I very much look forward to. Okay, and uh, whenever he has time for us, I also very much look forward to speaking to the great Mark Joseph Stern, and I think we might have a lot to talk about with him today. And that, by the way, was before we learned last week that the wife of corrupt Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was actively working to overthrow American democracy back in November and December of 2020. All of that is straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. You know who ought to be feeling some pressure right around now? That would be Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and or his wife, but I don't know if they are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. But let's start here in what may be the least interesting or even consequential news regarding the U.S. Supreme Court over the past week or two. The New York Times reported on Wednesday that Maine's Republican Senator Susan Collins will vote to confirm Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the high court, ensuring, as the Times reports, that President Biden's nominee and the first black woman to be put forward for the post will receive at least one Republican backer. After a second personal meeting with the judge on Tuesday afternoon, the Times reports that Ms. Collins said Judge Jackson had alleviated some concerns that surfaced after last week's contentious Senate Judiciary Committee hearings when Republicans attacked the nominee for her record and grilled her on a host of divisive issues during the indescribably stupid, though perhaps telling and even troubling, as my guest may suggest in a moment, hearings. I have decided to support the confirmation of Judge Jackson to be a member of the Supreme Court, Ms. Collins courageously told the paper in an interview after that meeting. While the more noteworthy news may be that this is news at all, That to date, just one single Republican has been willing to come out in favor of perhaps one of the most qualified Supreme Court nominees to ever have been selected for the high court. Maybe that should be the real story here, that just one Republican to date has been willing to do so. A story that underlines much of what I hope to discuss with Mark Joseph Stern. In a week, that also includes the similarly less than surprising, if still wildly disturbing news that Ginny Thomas, the wildly corrupt longtime right wing activist wife of Clarence Thomas, the wildly corrupt longtime right wing activist Supreme Court justice, had more than two dozen conspiracy theory laden text message exchanges, Back in November of 2020 with Donald Trump's then White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, urging him to keep fighting to steal a presidential election, which she characterized as, quote, the greatest heist in American history, while noting that she had been discussing it with her unnamed best friend, a phrase that both Ginny and Clarence have long used to describe each other. Oh, and. There is also the small Supreme Court related issue that while we're all justifiably concerned about that sort of out and out corruption on the court by its longest serving justice, the court itself. It's continuing to undermine landmark Voting Rights Act protections for voters in key swing states. It is preparing to roll back 1973's landmark Roe v. Wade decision, likely within the next few months. And several of the court's most corrupt justices believe, perhaps for the first time in U.S. history, that federal courts, not the president of the United States as commander in chief, should take ultimate command of the U.S. armed forces. Yes, seriously. As usual, very little to talk about today with our friend Mark Joseph Stern, the longtime Slate.com journalist and legal expert who covers the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, LGBTQ issues, and much more. Oh, Mr. Stern, welcome back to the broadcast
2: so happy to be back on brad i feel like you only call me when there's lots of bad news but i won't take that as an insult
1: (laughs) well i i call you all the time and there (laughs) only is ever bad news good luck finding any good news these days i'm not even sure where to start here mark well let's see where we'll where we'll uh, begin and where we end today uh your beat seems to cover just about every story that we're covering these days let's start with this dumbest news first uh to warm up Susan Collins told The Times she's going to support Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson now that she met with her a second time and has been reassured, according to Collins, that KBJ would not be, quote, bending the law to meet a personal preference. That's nice, uh, but given much of the news regarding the court of late, I guess not bending the law to meet a personal preference is only a requirement for justices appointed by Democratic presidents, Mark.
2: I could not have put it better myself. Um, This is rhetoric that is so entrenched in our political and cultural discussions of the Supreme Court, and yet so utterly detached from the reality of the current court, Mm -hmm. where uh, conservative justices will simply impose extra textual requirements on various civil rights laws and voting rights laws to ensure that Democrats always lose and Republicans always win, where conservatives will rewrite or overthrow precedent without any good reason or Mm -hmm. justification simply because it does not match their own political and ideological beliefs. The liberals, meanwhile, are in the tiny minority of this court screaming, can't we just apply the text and the law? But you know what? If this is what Susan Collins has to say to herself in <laughs> the world to lend her vote to KBJ, uh-huh. I suppose I can live with it.
1: Well, we're gonna have to, uh, and we'll see if she's the only Republican who ends up voting uh, in favor of her, which would be remarkable in and of itself. I want to talk about uh, what may have been revealed by last week's as I said, indescribably stupid confirmation hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee for Judge Jackson in a moment. But stepping back, what should we take away from the idea that, you know, there is only one Republican member now willing to vote for an otherwise uncontroversial, incredibly well-qualified nominee to the court? I mean, it's simply because she was nominated by a Democratic president. uh, president.
2: Well, I think it is very clear now that... Um, Republicans just begin from the position that Democratic presidents have no authority and no right to appoint Supreme Court justices Mm -hmm. or to appoint lower court judges. This is following a longstanding pattern in the Senate of Republicans almost uniformly or all uniformly voting against uh, nominees to the lower courts, Mm -hmm. including many who are super qualified and uncontroversial, uh, sometimes because they seem to be racist and sexist or homophobic, voting against a lesbian nominee quite recently, for instance, just because she happens to be gay. Um, and often because they have settled on this argument that, uh, as we discussed earlier, you know, Democratic appointees break mm-hmm. the law, bend the law, Republicans apply the law. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to believe that this is a temporary phase in American history. You know, we have actually kind of swung back and forth between close confirmation votes and big, overwhelming, lopsided confirmation votes. But I fear that this is how it will be forevermore, that basically uh, every... Member of the Democratic Party will support a Democratic president's nominee. Every Republican but one or two will oppose them, and we all have to pay outsized attention to a total mediocrity like Susan Collins, who was elected with like 10,000 votes and should not <laughs> matter at all.
1: Uh, you know, to me, this suggests that the days are over when any nominee to the High Court will be approved if the uh, President of the United States does not have also have partisan control of the U.S. Senate, at least if that president happens to be a Democrat. But is there any reason to doubt Mark Joseph Stern at this point that if Republicans gain control of the U.S. Senate in this year's midterm elections and any seat opens on the high court over the subsequent two years for any reason that Republicans will prevent Joe Biden from being able to fill that seat with anyone
2: i have no doubt um and i have been saying this for a while and i would actually go further and say i don't think that the senate will confirm any of biden's lower court nominees including his Mm. appeals court nominees i think that as soon as republicans take back the senate if they take back the senate they will put a near total blockade on biden's nominees and that will be the end of his judicial legacy so i just hope that voters who care about having functioning reasonable courts are paying attention to what Republican senators are saying and doing right now um, because it is a very bad omen for Biden's ability to fill vacant seats uh, if and when Mitch McConnell ever retakes control.
1: You know, I don't think they are paying attention, Mark. And, you know, I have uh, and the reason I say is this. I, I've, I've characterized the uh, KPJ confirmation hearings as stupid and ridiculous. And they were. You're, of course, welcome to disagree with me if you like. But, you know, for all of the distractions about Judge Jackson supposedly being soft on child porn users and terrorists, uh, both of which I should add are absurd charges, uh, there was much more. There was a much more disturbing line of questioning that emerged that received much less attention, it seems to me, but one that actually deserves much more notice. At least, uh, you know, for those who believe in such conservative concepts as freedom and privacy from big government and constitutional rights. Kate Riga writes uh, on Wednesday morning in a piece at TPM headlined, Loud and Proud Republicans Take Aim at Whole Constellation of Privacy Rights. Uh, She says in public remarks, leading Republicans have almost casually and with little fear of political recrimination begun to relitigate same-sex marriage, contraception, And interracial marriage with a robust 6-3 to conservative majority on the Supreme Court. The GOP's ambition to rework the privacy jurisprudence underlying many of the civil rights gains of the last 60 years isn't idle aspiration, but a very real threat. And she goes on to argue that uh, if Republicans retreated on gay marriage over the past uh, decade... It's only actually been seven years since the Obergefell decision. But if they did, it was only a tactical retreat. And she further cites lines of questioning that came up during Judge Jackson's hearings that seemed to eye 1965's Griswold v. Connecticut, establishing the right to privacy for adults to use contraception and even Loving v. Virginia. The 1967 ruling allowing interracial marriage in all 50 states. Is Kate right in sounding those alarms that the right actually is eyeing not just Roe v. Wade, but uh, marriage equality, contraception, interracial marriage at this point?
2: Kate is dead on. Um, And I wrote a piece about this myself that makes a similar argument. One of the most troubling lines of questioning came from Senator John Cornyn of Texas, and he really took direct aim at Obergefell, the marriage equality decision, Mm -hmm. and made it very clear that he would like to see that decision overturned. And a number of other senators brought this up, too, and really um, kind of argued for the unraveling of the entire constitutional doctrine of um, substantive due process, also known as unenumerated fundamental rights, this idea that there are some rights really deeply rooted in history and tradition that the government can't take away, including the right to marriage, um, the right to intimacy, the right to raise a family. Um, and, and, you know, this has been an issue in this abortion case that's pending before the court right now, where it's it's very difficult to understand how the court could overturn Roe versus Wade without dramatically undermining, if not also overturning, Mm -hmm. all of these other decisions from marriage equality to contraception. And I just want to add one interesting footnote here, which is that if you go through and you read a lot of either the legislation or the lawsuits that have been filed by Republicans um, trying to promote uh, parental control over schools, parental mm-hmm. control over education, trying to outlaw gender-affirming care for trans youth, trying to outlaw instruction on LGBTQ issues in people in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It actually often rests on an unenumerated fundamental right derived from substantive due process, which is the right to raise one's children as one wishes. That is a heartland right, as we say in the law, Mm -hmm. of substantive due process, and it is not mentioned in the Constitution. The word marriage, the word children, they are not in the Constitution. This is an idea that the Supreme Court has gleaned from the underlying values of the Constitution and from tradition. And so it is very, very odd to see Republicans... Uh, criticize this doctrine as it protects gay people and and women and and other couples and families, but then to turn around and try to deploy it uh, in their culture war quest Um, to give parents an absolute right over their children's education, their children's upbringing, and say, well, this is rooted in the Constitution. You just can't have it both ways.
1: Yeah, and they seem to be imagining certain uh, uh, ideas, rights into the Constitution on that level, and then on another level, like when it comes to Roe v. Wade, they're saying, well, there is no right uh, to an abortion in the Constitution. There is no right to privacy in the Constitution, as uh, as Roe v. Wade is based on, and since they're getting ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, saying there is no right to privacy on which to base it, we have th- that right, and, and, and help me understand this, uh, Mark, but doesn't that right sort of come out of decisions like Griswold v. Con- uh, Connecticut in 1965 regarding uh, the use of contraception, where they developed this constitutional right to to privacy they establish this uh and therefore all of these other cases in other words if they knock down roe v wade on the idea that there is no right to privacy then all of these other cases that are based on that can also fall next am i understanding it correctly
2: you are absolutely correct and i'll add that the uh drafter and 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 like sort of ringleader of the texas abortion ban the vigilante abortion ban He filed a brief before the Supreme Court urging it to overturn Obergefell, the marriage equality decision, Mm -hmm. and Loving versus Virginia, the Mm -hmm. interracial marriage decision, after it overturns Roe. He said, you should leave these other decisions hanging by a thread and your decision overturning Roe, and then you should come back and just overturn them too, because they are just as invalid as Roe. And I I, I think you're you're basically right about all of these decisions being intimately connected to this right to privacy, but it actually goes back even further. There were several decisions in the early 20th century, just to return to my point, that Mm -hmm. involved the right to raise children, so the right to send your children to private schools the right to teach your children a foreign language, that really kind of kicked off this doctrine as we know it. But it's not just about privacy, it's also about a, a kind of fundamental liberty to engage in intimate relationships, to have children, to you know raise mm-hmm. your children as you see fit, or not to have children, and again, if you start untangling it, it all falls apart, including These bedrock decisions that form the basis of parental rights under the Constitution. So, you know, we all know the Supreme Court can just gerrymander its decisions to disfavor liberal stuff and favor conservative stuff. Mm -hmm. But I would love to see conservatives engage with this a little bit more, more honestly, because they are sort of like putting their pet issue in line for execution by arguing for this entire constitutional doctrine to be
1: mm. overthrown. You also have been arguing lately on, uh, on Twitter that, uh, for example, uh, Florida's Republican governor and, and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis this week signed his so-called don't say gay bill into law, bars Florida school teachers from kindergarten to third grade from largely even acknowledging the existence of gay people. That is, of course, troubling enough, but you've been making the case on Twitter that what is actually going on here is, in fact, much larger than that, that this is a campaign that's actually about sort of sowing the ground for eventually overturning Obergefell, which, after all, even though, you know— Nobody even thinks about, uh, you know, same sex marriage anymore. Nobody even cares about it. Everything is fine. It turns out we weren't all forced to marry uh, gay people. So but, you know, with this attack in Florida, you are suggesting this is all meant to uh, sort of begin the attack to roll back marriage equality.
2: I really think so, and I, I know I might sound a little tinfoil hatty here because you know I, I'm I'm talking about this broader movement, and I, I can't necessarily uh, connect all of the dots right now. But as as an observer of the the rights, both the cultural right and the political right. Uh, it seems very clear that there is a campaign going on that is coordinated mm-hmm. to um, sort of roll back LGBTQ progress, specifically gay rights, not mm-hmm. just trans rights. Well, that's very obvious, but mm-hmm. gay rights as well, both culturally and politically. And so you see like a lot of the GOP's media figures reverting back to this casual homophobia. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of politicians and, and conservative activists um, reverting back to the days when gay men were all deemed groomers yeah. and mo- molesters and, yeah. and just indoctrinators of children, trying to recruit them. You were seeing drive-by pot shots at people like Pete Buttigieg for, uh, for adopting children with his husband. You're seeing this stuff that it felt like we were over. Yeah. And suddenly it's roaring back And I don't think you can separate that out from the return of this hideous anti-gay legislation. They are hand in hand. There are two movements here that are working together to create a cultural environment where it would be more acceptable not just to pass anti-gay legislation, but to overturn uh, gay rights decisions and allow states to start criminalizing. Uh, same-sex relationships and refusing to recognize them.
1: Yeah, and it's not just, uh, you know, folks in the right-wing media. It's actually, you know, Ron DeSantis's press secretary was accusing uh, gay teachers of, quote, grooming students at a young age uh, to, I guess, convince them to become gay is the idea that that we haven't really heard since, you know, the 80s and 90s as, uh, you know, as an attack on on gay people. Uh, It is very troubling. I think should Should pay attention to the warnings you are offering on all of this, Mark Joseph Stern. Um, Let's uh, (laughs) move, you know, and I'm not even sure where to start with this one. uh, But Ginny and Clarence Thomas. Uh, Last week, we learned Ginny, the wildly corrupt longtime right wing activist, was texting Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, back in November of 2020, urging him to do everything possible to overturn the results of Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. Obviously signaling uh, to the administration that they had a friend on the high court, as Clarence was one of the few to vote in favor of a number of these ridiculous challenges to the election results that were brought uh, to the court by Trump and his supporters. And Clarence was the only justice to vote to block the subpoena by the House Select Committee investigating the uh, January 6th insurrection from receiving White House records from the National Archives, which, for all that was known at the time, might have included text messages and emails from none other than his wife, Ginny Thomas. I guess let me start with your first top-line reaction to this news uh, that was broken last week by The Washington Post, Bob Woodward and um, uh, Robert Costa.
2: My first reaction is that this may feel like the latest in a long line of atrocious conflicts of interest and injustices that Clarence and Ginny Thomas have inflicted on the country, but it is materially different because we have never before seen a case where Clarence Thomas's vote so directly implicates his wife's work. We have seen many, many cases where there have been parties before the court, amicus briefs filed by organizations uh, of which Ginny Thomas is a part or an ally or somehow involved, but we've never before seen a kind of case like this where Thomas's vote will have direct and concrete implications for his wife, not just in terms of her advocacy, but her ability to remain, you know, a free citizen, not under investigation by a congressional committee. Mm-hmm. Like this looks to the world quite reasonably like a husband trying to shield his wife from legal scrutiny. And I think that that is just a huge leap forward in this story. It's easy to miss because it's been so bad for so long. Mm -hmm. But this is different in kind, not just degree.
1: Uh, And I I hear you, and I think you're right. Let me throw in uh, uh, one sort of challenge to that. uh, Because, you know, Clarence and Jenny have been pulling off, I think, this similar scam now for decades because few seem to know that Clarence's controversial confirmation back in 1991 was supported by hundreds of thousands of dollars in ads and PR uh, by a little-known group at the time named Citizens United. Years later, of course, with the help of Clarence, you know, they went on to win a case that unleashed hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in dark money into our electoral system, after which Ginny Thomas herself reaped hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for, for to her, her, non, her so-called nonpartisan nonprofit organizations and that, by the way, after Clarence had failed to declare hundreds of thousands of dollars that Ginny was receiving from the Right Wing Heritage Foundation, uh, he forgot to declare that for 20 years on his annual financial statements. But a decision that he made in uh, Citizens United was, seems to me, payback for their help in his confirmation, but directly benefited his wife in that case. That's... Sort of like what you're uh, citing there, no?
2: Yeah, it is. Um, I, I don't think we disagree. I mean, it, it's just a question of, you know, cases where his votes benefited his wife yeah. and helped his wife's advocacy, yeah. and cases where his vote actually shielded his wife from literal legal...
1: Criminal sc- scrutiny, yeah. Criminal <laughs> yeah.
2: scrutiny, I just see a bit of a distinction there because, I mean, you know, my issue with um, talking about how a judge's vote can benefit them or their spouse mm-hmm. directly, there was this really nasty line of attack on gay judges who were hearing marriage equality decisions, mm-hmm. remember, mm-hmm. and people like Ed Whalen uh, National Review argues that gay judges should not be allowed to hear these cases because if their relationships could be recognized, that they would get tax benefits, mm-hmm. and thus they would enrich themselves by striking down same-sex marriage bans. Obviously, what you just described is totally different, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you in know, a, a, a totally different universe, but I still think that what we're discussing today about the January 6th Committee is sui generis. It, it's just unlike anything we've seen before with the Supreme Court justice, going back to the founding of the republic. And so I do think it's 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 helpful to draw this distinction between votes that benefit a spouse mm-hmm. and votes that shield them from a criminal yeah. probe.
1: Well, OK, that in mind, uh, you know, some Democrats have very politely called for Clarence Thomas to recuse himself. From any further cases involving the 2020 election, in my opinion, Mark Joseph Stern, that does not go nearly far enough. What is the right remedy at this point for Clarence? And barring that, what what should happen next? And what should Democrats and frankly, all Constitution law and order loving Americans be calling for at this remarkable moment?
2: So there's a difference between the right answer and the feasible answer. Uh-huh, so, right. The, the right answer is obviously that he should be impeached and removed. I mean, who could, who, could, who could really disagree at this stage? Like, what he is doing is the definition of corruption. If you saw it happen in another country, you would say that is some nonsense. That is some corrupt, unethical, not just injudicious, but dangerous Uh, twisting of the law for personal gain, Um, and, and it would make you lose all faith in the judiciary. But of course, that's not going to happen, because Democrats aren't going to waste political capital, or they see it as a waste of political capital on impeaching him when he will not be removed by the Senate. No Republican will ever vote for him to be removed. And so I think that the more feasible answer, though still unrealistic at this moment, is of course to neutralize his vote, by adding seats to the supreme court if you can't remove him if you can't take him away if you can't directly prevent him from benefiting and shielding himself and his wife then the least you can do is add seats to ensure that his vote does not practically matter. Mm. And I think that that's an argument that Democrats should be making. They're not because they're afraid of of court expansion as a political issue, but it is the only thing within the the vast realm of possibility Mm. that seems to approach a, a realistic response here.
1: Yeah. And, uh, well, approach a realistic response. You still would have to get past guys like Joe Manchin and so forth, which basically means they have to increase their majority uh, on the on in the Senate uh, in, in 22 in order, I think, to even consider that. But, you know, the notion that they are so polite, I mean, they should call for his recusal not just for 2020 election cases, but 2022, 2024, anything that Donald Trump is involved in in any way. He should be recusing himself, uh, and I'll, I'll point folks again to uh, Rick Wilson, this uh, longtime kind of abhorrent uh, GOP operative, yeah. but he's now <laughs> he's now a, a never Trumper Lincoln Project guy, and he correctly argued that if the case was reversed here, Republicans would salt the earth. This would come up every single day on every from you know out of the mouths of every Republican uh, office holder and from every uh, right wing media outlet until this guy had been removed, uh, you know, resigned from office. Democrats just don't seem to, to play that way, do they?
2: <laughs> they don't get it. They don't do it. And I fear they never will.
1: Let me ask you this, Mark Joseph Stern, before we get to a break here. Uh, the original uh, text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3... Holds that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of President and vice, or vi- and vice President or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or as a member of any state legislature, etc., etc., if they uh, support the Constitution of the United States with an oath and then shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. First question here, Mark Joseph Stern. Is a Supreme Court justice considered an officer of the United States?
2: Overwhelming majority of scholars would say yes. Tiny minority of hack scholars would say no. I am going to safely say yes.
1: Could Clarence Thomas then be seen as having given, quote, aid and comfort to an insurrectionist calling for the reversal of uh, of a lawfully held and tallied presidential election?
2: You know, I think that is a difficult call. I, I have, to, I would have to see what he did and what he said and what he believed behind the scenes before I think I could answer it.
1: And I guess uh, the only way we will find that out. Is if Jenny Thomas is called by the uh, 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 the January 6th committee to testify, if she's subpoenaed to testify right now, Liz Cheney is apparently blocking that subpoena. At best, they may uh, ask her politely to come in for an interview. But if there is information that she spoke about this with her best friend husband, sounds like you don't want to go on record one way or another with that hypothetical.
2: I I just, you know, I I want to uh, work with the facts at hand Uh and uh, say that if there were evidence that Ginny Thomas worked with Clarence Thomas to ensure that he voted in ways that would facilitate Trump's coup, then you might have a colorable case, but we don't have that information yet, and so I am very hesitant to commit myself.
1: I'm speaking with the conservative Mark Joseph Stern. (laughs) He covers uh, the law and the court system for Slate.com. I need to take a very quick break here, and I want to come back, Mark, to ask you about some uh, election uh, voting issues, some gerrymandering issues that I'm having a really difficult time understanding, and I hope you can help me understand it. Uh, Sit tight for one quick second, take a quick break, and we're back with the great Mark Joseph Stern right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of the broadcast. We'll be back soon. Well that's
1: Somewhat calming, Desi Doyen, thank you very much, but yeah. I don't think it's going to work. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We've got one more quick segment here with the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, who covers the, uh, the court system, Supreme Court, election law, and everything else over there. Uh, Mark, uh, we've been trying to keep up on this show uh, with th- this year's Redistricting Battles, Following the uh, 2020 census and the new maps for both state and legislative and uh, congressional offices that are being drawn up around the country by the various states, in many cases since the U.S. Supreme Court declared, I think in 2019, that federal courts may have no say whatsoever when it comes to partisan gerrymandering issues, state Supreme Courts have jumped in. Uh, to some of these battles and actually made favorable rulings, both for Democrats and for those who believe in voting rights. Now, the S- uh, Supreme Court, however, U.S. Supreme Court still has a say in racial gerrymanders under the Voting Rights Act. And they made a decision last week on the shadow docket uh, regarding Wisconsin's state legislative maps that frankly has flummoxed me no matter how much I have read about it, including even your own piece on it at Slate, uh, Mark, headlined the Supreme Court's astonishing, inexplicable blow to the Voting Rights Act in Wisconsin, uh, I-, I really I am really confused by this case. You are very good at explaining complicated legal ideas in plain human being language. So, no pressure, but can you, can you help me understand what the hell just went on, why it's so important? Uh, because I am, I'm really, I'm baffled by it no matter how much I have read about it. I don't understand it.
2: Okay, I'm going to crack my knuckles here, right. take a swing at it, Good. let's see if I can do this. Good luck. Wisconsin is a divided government. Legislature mm-hmm. is Republican, Democratic governor. Mm-hmm. Legislature passes a super gerrymandered map. Governor vetoes it. They can't agree on a new map. Mm-hmm. The state Supreme Court, which has a 4-3 conservative majority, mm-hmm. steps in. State Supreme Court says, all right, look, we'll, we'll pick the map, everybody submit maps, and our number one criterion will be which map moves the fewest voters out of their current districts. Okay? So,
1: so the districts that were in place for the past 10 years, we yes. want to try to stick as close as we can to that, not shake things up as much as possible.
2: It's called the least change rule. And let's remember, the current maps are an extreme GOP gerrymander. Mm -hmm. They produced a super majority of Republicans in the state legislature Mm -hmm. when Republicans got a minority of votes. Mm -hmm. So they are already a a huge political gerrymander. Um, So the governor, Tony Evers, he takes this seriously. He says, okay, I'm going to do a map that moves the fewest number of people. He Mm -hmm. does it. One thing that he does is create a Seventh majority black legislative district in Milwaukee. Milwaukee is a historically black city. Mm-hmm. In the last 10 years, its black population has grown. It previously had six districts. He draws a seventh to account for this population growth. Continues to keep everybody in their districts as, as much as possible. Everybody submits their map. And Brian Hagedorn, a justice on this court, a conservative yes. Republican no lefty. Ran,
1: yeah, no, no, yeah, who yeah. ran
2: as like a textualist, originalist conservative, yep. he picks Tony Evers' map. And he says, look, the one criterion here is how many voters got moved. And in this map, there are very, very few. So this will be the map. And if someone wants to come and challenge it in the future under the Voting Rights Act or the Equal Protection Clause or whatever, they can do it. But this is the map that we will adopt. Okay? Mm-hmm. Republicans, for the first time in this entire litigation, go to the U.S. Supreme Court and accuse both Tony Evers and Justice Brian Hagedorn of being racists because they adopted a map that created a 7th black majority district in Milwaukee. They say this district must be based on race, This district, because it has a majority of black residents, must have been gerrymandered to favor black voters, and that is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And the U.S. Supreme Court agrees and strikes down the map.
1: And uh, which, by the way, is, is just remarkable because this same Supreme Court has haven't they put on hold other decisions based on the so-called Purcell principle that we are too close to the election. Therefore, we have to go ahead with an unlawful map because it would just cause too much chaos if we change things, if we change the court uh, a rule, an election rule at this late date.
2: Not only has the court repeatedly used the so-called Purcell principle to prevent other federal courts from intervening in election laws, the Wisconsin Election Commission came to SCOTUS, in this case, Mm -hmm. hat in hand, and pleaded for it to release its decision, whatever decision it might be, to do it very quickly, because if it waited for too long, then they would not be able to finish their new districts in their computer system, which are necessary to align with the voter registration data to ensure that everyone is registered where they're supposed to be and can vote in the primary, which is four months away. The Supreme Court ignores the Wisconsin Election Commission, waits for more than a week after the deadline that the commission gives to issue its decision, and does not mention the Purcell principle in its unsigned majority opinion,
1: which is stunning. I mean, this is a real case where the Purcell principle might actually uh, matter, uh, as opposed to when it's been invoked in the past, seemingly uh, at random. When it, you know, would help a Republican the, re- the stolen and packed Republican majority on the Supreme Court. Now, it actually should have been invoked here, if nothing else. And it wasn't. So does this mean then this is on hold and the unlawful maps that the Republican Supreme Court at the uh, uh, state level didn't choose that that map will now be in place for the 2022 elections in the swing state of Wisconsin?
2: No one knows what this means. No one. Not the Supreme Court that issued the decision, not the Wisconsin Supreme Court, not anyone in Wisconsin. This decision has thrown the state's redistricting process and upcoming primaries into absolute disarray. Candidates don't know which districts they'll be running in. They can't circulate the necessary petitions to get on the ballot in their districts. Voters may be registered in the wrong districts. No one knows what happens next.
1: The very thing that the Purcell principle is supposed to prevent from happening, the Supreme Court has now made that
0: happen.
2: And here, here is their justification for it, and I'm only exaggerating slightly. The uh-huh. court says at the end of its opinion, in short, this decision will not interrupt the upcoming Wisconsin election because the Wisconsin election cannot be interrupted by this decision.
1: Leaving me just as confused as I was when I began. No wonder I haven't been able to figure out what the hell happened here. The good news for you, Mark Joseph Stern, is because I am now short on time, having uh, talked to you about so much. I won't even ask you about the potentially even more complicated Ohio gerrymandering case that is going on in the Buckeye State, which may end up being equally as messy. But we'll hold that for another time, another show. Mark, you are always enlightening. You are always helpful. I am always grateful to be able to turn to you to try to make some sense out of this uh, madness. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern uh, can and should be read every day at Slate.com. You can follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you, my friend.
2: Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brad. You
1: bet. Okay, got to get, he's the best. He, he is. is the best.
0: He has a way of describing things that are extremely complex in a really entertaining and understandable way.
1: And he happens to be right over and over and over again. We, we yeah. like people uh, like that. Yes. Uh, based on facts and stuff. All right, got to get out. Thank you very much uh, again to Mark, to my producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. That, of course, made possible by those of you... Uh, hey, have you stopped by bradblog.com slash donate recently? If not, no thanks to you. But if you have, <laughs> thank you very much. That's what keeps us on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Come on over, follow us there. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.